All right, now let's take out our Bibles together. And let's go to the book of Jude once more. Jude, verse 17 is where we'll begin today. Uh, it's always a special thing for me in particular when we finish out a book of the Bible after having preached through the, the entire thing uh, and get a little bit of closure and joy from having done this and having heard all of God's word through that particular book. And so today we finish out the book of Jude. Uh, where we're going from here on for the next two weeks, Lord willing, we'll spend some time focusing on Christmas and the first coming of Christ. After that, starting with the new year, we'll probably have a, a couple topical sermons, and then my plan is mid to late January uh, to start us on the Gospel of Mark. And so, Lord willing, we'll spend a significant portion of 2023 in the Gospel of Mark, trying to go verse by verse through that book as well. But today we finish out the book of Jude. Now, so far in this letter, Jude has focused uh, almost exclusively on the opponents of Christianity that were coming in and attacking the faith. We've talked about people who have come into Jude's church, come into the church where Jude is writing to, and have secretly come in trying to lead people astray from the Lord Jesus and his words. And he talked about all of the, the ways that they had incited and in, invoked the anger of God and the wrath of God. But now he turns his focus on the believers that he is writing to and through them to us. What are we to do? What word does he have for us as followers of Jesus? That's what we turn to today. And so let's read our text, Jude, verse 17 to the end of the, the book. This is the word of God. Jude writes, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, In the last time there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt, Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Now I want to draw your attention back to verse 20 right there. Verse 20 is kind of where he makes the turn, so to speak, from the opponents to the believers, from all the people who are attacking Christianity to us. But you, beloved, that's what I've titled today's sermon, but you, beloved. And after he says that, and he starts focusing on the believers, he gives us five things that we are to do. Five things that we, the beloved ones of God, five things that we are to do as believers, as opposed to what the opponents are doing, what the false teachers that he talks about are doing. And so we're going to take these five in succession. And the first one comes right at the beginning of verse 21. He says, keep yourselves in the love of God. 
You, beloved, no matter what anybody else is doing attacking the faith, keep yourself in the love of God. Now, there's actually two ways that he says that we are to be doing this. Two phrases that he gives in verse 20 that are actually modifying that that imperative, keep yourselves in the love of God in verse 21. So there's two phrases back up in verse 20, look there with me, that modify that. And the first is building yourselves up in the most holy faith. And the second is praying in the Holy Spirit. These are the two ways we keep ourselves in the love of God. First, he says, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. Now, the sense here of this phrase is not so much encouraging one another, building one another up. That's, that's one way that you could say building up means. Building up could mean you're supposed to be encouraging one another. That's not really the sense here. The sense here is building on a foundation. Building something up on a foundation. And the foundation is the holy faith that has been passed down to us. The holy faith that Jude mentioned back up in verse 3 where he said we are to be contending for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We are to be building ourselves up on that foundation of the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We are to be growing in our understanding and our knowledge of God's word. Because God's word is the vehicle through which that faith comes to us. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. The faith. That Jude talks about. The faith is the doctrine that has been passed down from Jesus and the apostles. It comes to us through God's word. And so as we build ourselves up in this faith, we are to be growing in our understanding and our knowledge of God and this faith through the Bible. We should strengthen our faith by growing day by day, month by month, year by year, maturing as disciples Because we make a point to study our Bibles. Build yourselves up in this holy faith. Study your Bible, both alone and with the gathered church. Two ways that we need to be growing in our knowledge of God's word. One, reading it on our own. Reading it by ourselves. Having time where we get alone with God. Perhaps it's at home, perhaps it's wherever, wherever you might find time to do it. But getting in your Bible, by yourself, alone with God, Monday through Saturday, if you will. But also, building ourselves up in God's Word when the church is gathered. Sunday mornings, hearing the Word proclaimed, Sunday school, or other Bible studies that we can be attending with other believers. So growing in God's Word, both alone and with one another. And in this way, we are keeping ourselves in the love of God. This is one of the primary ways you keep yourself in the love of God. You build yourself up by growing in the knowledge of God's word and the knowledge of that holy faith. But he also says praying in the Holy Spirit. Praying in the Holy Spirit. Paul says something very similar to this at the end of the the list of the armor of God in Ephesians 6. If you remember, after he says that you're, you're to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, he also says we are to be praying at all times in the Spirit. Praying at all times in the Spirit. And Jude says here, praying in the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to pray in the Holy Spirit? What does that mean? Well, I think... What it has to mean, at least, 
is to pray in line with the Holy Spirit, to, to let the Holy Spirit line you up with the will of God as you pray, with the Holy Spirit inside of you leading you on. Praying in line with the will of God means praying in line with the scriptures that the Holy Spirit himself has inspired. It might make you think of Romans 8.26, where it says, There are times where we do not know what to pray. We do not know how to pray as we ought, but the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. Praying in the Spirit. Being in touch with the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us and praying through that. Praying in the Holy Spirit might be contrasted to praying in the flesh. Praying in the flesh. Before I I get up here every Sunday, I pray and ask the Lord to help me preach in the Spirit and not in the flesh. Because there's a way to do this that's just, just me. There's a way to do this that's just physical. And it's just relying on ourselves. And then there's a way to do it in the Holy Spirit. Relying on the Holy Spirit, strengthened by the Holy Spirit. And sometimes it's, it's, it's a gray area, honestly. Sometimes it's not always clear how to do that. But having that, that heart and that attitude of dependence on the Spirit as you pray, that's at least the start of it. I, I wish I could give you a more concrete answer. But as you very well know, the Spirit is often something that is, is not concrete at all. Jesus told us, we, we hear the wind, but we don't know where it comes from. And in the same way, we, we, we don't know where the Spirit is working. We just see its effects. The Holy Spirit, praying in the Spirit. We must be people of prayer, though. We must be depending on God, calling out to God, pouring out our hearts to Him, and spending intimate time with Him. Spending intimate time with the Lord, both in the Word and in in prayer. When you spend time in prayer, you're cultivating your relationship with God. There are times where we, we, we can pray all throughout the day. Paul says pray without ceasing. And it's important to pray here and there as you go through your day. Every time you, you think you need the Lord, every time you, you remember you need the Lord, you throw up a prayer. Pray at all times. Pray without ceasing. But to cultivate your relationship with God, one of the things you need to do is to have a time where you get alone with the Lord and you concentrate on prayer. You're not doing something else and praying while you're doing that other thing. No, you're, you're praying. You're spending time with the Lord. And in this way, we cultivate our relationship with him. As many of you know, any good relationship is a two-way street. It's communication from one to the other and back. Any good relationship requires that you speak and they listen, but then they speak And you listen. Well, to have a relationship with God, it's also a two-way street. God speaks. In fact, we could say God has spoken. And we listen to him as we read his word. But then we speak back. We speak back to him through prayer. And in this way, it's a relationship. You're cultivating your relationship with the Lord. And so these two things combine to help us to keep ourselves In the love of God, as Jude says, keep yourselves in the love of God. One synonym to that in the New Testament is the word abide. You've probably read this throughout your New Testaments. Abide in the Lord. The the word abide is especially prevalent in the writings of John as he records the words of Jesus. 
The writings of John, he constantly records Jesus saying, abide. For example, let me read to you John 15, verses 4 through 10. And I want you, as I read through this a little bit longer passage, I want you to see how many times Jesus says the word abide. John 15, starting in verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Did you see that? How many times, so many times, abide, abide, abide. It means remain, stay with him, stay close to him. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Abide in the love of God. It's a constant refrain throughout our Bibles. And so that's number one, keep yourselves in the love of God. Number two, Jude tells us to wait for the mercy of our Lord. Waiting for the mercy there in verse 21, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Often in the Christmas season, believers turn their minds on the many stories in Scripture of those who were waiting for the coming Messiah. Christmas is especially a time for those who wait. In Scripture, we learn of Joseph of Arimathea, took care of the body of Jesus and gave him his tomb after Jesus died. And we are told that Joseph of Arimathea was waiting for the coming of God's kingdom. You might think of two individuals in the temple when the baby Jesus was taken to the temple, Simeon and Anna, who saw Jesus in the temple as a baby and rejoiced because they had been waiting their entire lives for the coming of the Messiah. In the same way today, just as that first Christmas, people had been waiting for God, waiting for Jesus, waiting for the Messiah, we too wait. We wait for the coming of Christ. We wait not for his first coming, but for his second. But we too are waiting for the coming of Christ. Paul often writes about how we are to be those who are waiting for our blessed hope, which is the return of Christ. Or Paul also says the, the reward of a crown of righteousness awaits those who long for Jesus's appearing. We are those who wait just like they were. One day Christ will return. Think on that. Just think on that. One day he will return. And when he does, all the enemies of God will be defeated. No more Satan, no more sin, no more death. The last enemy to be defeated is death. And Jesus will reward those who remain faithful to him. Live each day, brothers and sisters, in anticipation of that day. 
when he will return. Live each day in anticipation of his second coming. Jesus tells his parables, and this is probably the most consistent and common theme in all of Jesus' parables, that we are to stay awake, stay ready, stay alert, for we do not know when the master will return. It will come like a thief in the night. It will be at an hour when we least expect, but stay awake, stay ready. And so while the world around you spirals into chaos, it seems, and as you see the increase of sin and ungodliness around you, hold on to the hope of God's promise. Just like those first century Jews were holding on to the hope of the promise of the coming Messiah, we hold on to the hope of the promise that one day Jesus will come back. And one day he will come for us who remain faithful to him. All those who opposed him will wail and despair because they will realize in that moment it is the day of their their destruction, that it is too late. But for those who remained loyal, who were waiting with this hope in their hearts, it will be the greatest day of our entire lives. Long for it. Live in anticipation of it. Think often about it. Third, Jude tells us to have mercy on those who doubt. Verse 22. Have mercy on those who doubt. He does not say get upset with those who doubt. He does not say get frustrated with those who doubt. He does not say complain about those who doubt. He says have mercy on them. Have mercy on those who doubt. For we all have times of doubt. We all experience this, do we not? We all do. Are you in a season of life right now where you are not experiencing doubt? Congratulations. Some are. Have mercy on them. This world and its sorrows gets to us. And we hope that when our doubts arise, that our brothers and sisters in Christ will have mercy on us, will be patient with us. That, that there's a sense here of patience. Be patient with those who doubt. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, and then he says this, Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Now he has to say that because sometimes... We get impatient with the faint-hearted. Sometimes with the weak, we get impatient. Sometimes our patience isn't what it should be. It's tempting to be impatient with them. So he has to tell us, be patient with them. Be patient with those who doubt. There are times where we doubt God's goodness. Have you been there? There are times where we doubt God's promises. There are times where we doubt our own salvation. And there may even be times where we doubt the very faith itself. But what a a glorious and wonderful day it will be when we are mingling with everyone who made it to heaven. And then, out of the corner of our eye, we see someone who we thought had walked away from the faith. But it turns out 
They were just going through a season of doubt. And yet in the end, they held on. In the end, they came back home to Christ, and we just didn't know it. In the end, they were saved because God himself has mercy on those who doubt. You realize the reason why Jude wrote this, the reason why the Holy Spirit had Jude to write this. He wrote this because God has mercy on those who doubt. That's why you are to have mercy on those who doubt. It is because God himself has mercy on those who doubt. And there's a bunch of us in here right now saying, thank the Lord that he does. God has mercy on those who doubt. And so if you are experiencing a season of doubt right now, know that God is merciful and patient and compassionate with those who doubt. And know that there have been so many believers throughout the history of the church who have struggled through periods of doubt, but have come out the other side stronger. God knows that we are weak. God knows that you are weak. Psalm 103, verse 14, he remembers that we are dust. It's one of the most encouraging verses in all the Bible to me. Because he's not surprised when we mess up. He's not surprised when we struggle. He's not surprised when we doubt. He knows how weak we are. He knows. Jesus Christ knows all about it. He came. He became one of us. He experienced all our temptations and weaknesses. And he held on, never having sinned. He knows all the struggles. And thank the Lord that he does. We may change like shifting sand. We may go through periods of confidence and doubt, and confidence and doubt. But praise the Lord, rejoice that we serve a God who never changes. He never changes. Fourth, Jude tells us at the beginning of verse 23... Save others by snatching them out of the fire. Save others. Save others, brothers and sisters. Listen to these words from Proverbs 24.11. My mind immediately went here when I read that. Proverbs 24.11, rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. Notice there in Proverbs and here in Jude 23, Notice the responsibility that is placed on us in saving others. The responsibility that is placed on us. No, we cannot change hearts. No, we cannot make someone want to be saved. Yet, nevertheless, we are told to do this. It's in no uncertain terms. God is telling us to save others. He's telling you, to save other people, to rescue people from eternal death, to save people from the eternal fire of hell. Save them. Brothers and sisters, it is not enough for us to simply pray for others to be saved, although that is absolutely essential. That's absolutely essential. Pray. Do pray. Pray all the time. For people to be saved. But it's not enough for us to just leave it there. And then wait for God to just do something. Without us. God tells you. Save others. Go save others. 
We must go. We must go and make disciples. That's what Jesus told us to do in the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples. We must go and proclaim the good news to those we come in contact with. We must plant seeds. We must risk our own reputation. And rest assured, brothers and sisters, the harder we work at evangelism, the more people will be saved from this eternal fire. The harder we work at evangelism, the more people will be saved. The less we work at it, the less people will be saved. In the end, God has to save someone, yes. In the end, God has to change someone's heart. But that does not preclude the fact that he tells us through command, save others, rescue people. We have to do this. We have a job to do. Let us stir up our affections and our motivations to go and do it. If you saw someone stumbling into a blazing fire, about to fall in and kill themselves, would you not reach out and pull them back? Would you not grab them and save them? Of course you would. We have friends and family members and neighbors and co-workers who are doing just that, only this fire is much, much worse. And it is eternal, never-ending. And for those who fall into it, there will be no end to their torment. No end. It is much worse than stumbling into a fire on this earth and dying physically. We must do all we can to save people from this. Because we care about them. Because we love them. And we desperately don't want to see them go to hell. And so save others Fifth and finally, it comes at the end of verse 23, hate sin. Hate sin. He says there at the end of verse 23, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. By the flesh. The flesh is is, is a way of saying our sinful nature. Our sinful nature. The flesh. Right? We have desires of the flesh. And so the idea here is hate sin. Hate it. When you decide to follow Jesus, you also decide to turn away from sin. When you decide to follow Jesus, you don't just decide to to love everyone. You do. But you also decide to forsake sin. To pursue holiness out of reverence for God. Walking behind Jesus, that's what following Jesus is. Walking behind Jesus means walking in the opposite direction of sin. If you're going to walk behind Jesus, you will be going in the opposite direction of sin. And to do this, we must cultivate a hatred for it. We must cultivate a hatred for sin. It would be great if you would come to Christ and get baptized, and then all of a sudden your desires changed, and you only wanted good and you hated the evil. It'd be great. I wish God did it that way. But in his wisdom, in his providence, he didn't. You become a Christian. You are saved. You have the Holy Spirit. You have a new heart. And yet you have to slowly learn to become holy as God is holy. You have to slowly become who you are objectively. That's the way God has set it up. 
And so we have to cultivate a hatred for sin. We have to grow in hatred of sin. Sin cannot simply be a pleasure we resist. Sin cannot just be a pleasure we resist. It must be something we grow to detest. The goal is to be repulsed by sin. To have your taste buds slowly change to where you don't even want it any longer. And so at first, when you come to Christ, you will still feel a strong pull towards certain sins that you used to embrace. That's very natural. But the longer you walk with Christ, the more you should be developing and cultivating new desires, where you begin to love what God loves and hate what God hates. Before Christ, many of us loved things that God hated, and many of us hated things that God loved. But when you come to Christ, slowly but surely, you begin to become the kind of person that loves what God loves and hates what God hates. But you don't just become that way. You have to decide to do it. You have to work at it. You have to grow in it actively. Hatred of sin does not just happen. You have to decide to hate sin. You have to pursue a hatred of sin, actively working to cultivate it. This means we discipline ourselves to avoid sin and temptation. And at the same time, we take time to cultivate our love for the Lord and our love for the things of the Lord. I recently read Psalm 119 in my devotions. Psalm 119, you might remember this as the longest chapter in all the Bible. Psalm 119. Pretty sure David wrote it. I'm not 100% sure on that. There are other people who wrote some of the Psalms. Pretty sure David wrote this one. But in Psalm 119, whether it's David or somebody else, you can see oozing out of this person... The desires of God, loving what he loves and hating what he hates. Over and over again, let's say it's David. Over and over again, David will say things like, I love your law. I love your commands. I delight in your precepts. I rejoice in your testimonies. You can just count the ways that he says the same thing in different words. But he says it over and over again. I love it. I love The words of God. I love what God tells me to do. And he says multiple times in that same psalm, I hate every wrong way. I hate evil. He's gotten to the point to where he loves what God loves. He hates what he hates. One of the reasons I believe David wrote that psalm is because David was called a man after God's own heart. That means a man who is after the desires of God, who is after loving what God loves and hating what God hates. And so, in conclusion, brothers and sisters, five things Jude tells us to do here. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. And hate sin. Hate sin. Right now, we're going to spend some time in silent prayer and reflection. Specifically, we encourage you during this time each week after the sermon, this time of silent prayer, we encourage you to respond to God's word. Respond to God's word. Many times we we do an invitation and we ask people to come forward and respond, but those are only people who are responding publicly. We all need to respond to God's word. We all have a response to make before the Lord 
whether it's private or public. And so we give this time so that every single one of us can go to the Lord and respond to whatever he has laid on your heart. We ask that you would do that right now in silent prayer, and then after a few minutes, we'll come back together and we'll have an invitation where anyone who needs to respond to God's word publicly can do so then.